Good morning, and welcome to our continuing study in the book of First Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of First Timothy. As we turn there, let's uh, remind ourselves what the book of 1 Timothy is about. 1 Timothy is a letter concerned with ordering the life of the church. It's a letter concerned with ordering the life of the church. And in our text today, we learn about the life of the church as it concerns our genders. The life of the church concerning our genders. 1 Timothy Chapter 2. This text deals with the life of the church in relation to our two sexes. And as we dive into this text, consider how timely and necessary this message is today. Consider how timely this, this message is. The world believes that gender is a social construct, that it's made up. Only two genders. That's so old-fashioned. That's what the world believes. Churches around the Western world today forsake the teaching of the Bible because they believe it is outdated. This is the context in which we hear God's word today. At stake today is the glory of Christ as our maker and as our redeemer. At stake today is the righteousness that Christ produces in us and the inerrancy of the scriptures. Before, before we read our text, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are the one who inspired these scriptures for our learning. You are the one who wrote them, who gave us words from heaven for our instruction. And Father, we come humbly this morning asking for your help. We ask that you would exalt your name in our midst. We ask that you would exalt the name of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. You are worthy, Lord, of all of our adoration, all of our obedience. And we ask that you would teach us your will this morning. Help us to have hearts ready and willing to receive your truth. Indeed, Lord, speak to us. Help us to hear the voice of our shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. But Christ came for us. He came for sinners. Exalt his glory in our midst today, we pray. And bless preaching and the reading of your word. We pray all these things for Christ's glory. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word for Grace Community Church this morning. As we look at verse 8, I would like to ask you a question. Why does the Apostle Paul give different imperatives to men and women in this text? Why does the Apostle Paul give different imperatives to men and women in this text? It may be that these were the particular issues that men and women in this church struggled with, and so they needed instruction. But as we look across the entire Bible, we see a repeated pattern of gendered imperatives. We find many, many imperatives in the Bible that are common to men and women. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. These are common to all human beings. But then we also find gendered imperatives. We find many gender-specific commands. And we should ask ourselves why. If you'll turn with me to the book of Genesis, we find our answer in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is a key text to understand and remember as we look at our text in 1 Timothy. In the creation account in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so this verse teaches us that when mankind was made in the image of God, there was no genderless form for this image. The image of God is always either male or female. It's always gendered. The image of God does not come in genderless form. When God made creation and called it very good, there were two genders, no more, no less. Both of them good, distinct, both of them imaging God. And so when Christ redeems us and restores us in the image of God, he redeems us as men and women. And he shapes us to be holy men and holy women, nothing else. Holy men and holy women. As Christians being conformed to the image of God, as Christians being conformed in holiness, that's why we need gendered imperatives. Because we need particular instructions for men and particular instructions for women. The gendered image of God requires gendered imperatives. 
And that's what we have find in our text this morning. This is why in verses 8 and in verse 9, just like in many other parts of the Bible, God addresses us in and by our gender. Our text this morning teaches us to pursue what is proper because God's will is fitting for his church. Pursue what is proper because God's will is fitting for his church. And the first thing we learn is about godliness in manhood. What is it that's proper for godly men in verse 8? We learn that in every place the man should pray. In every place the man should pray. Last week we discussed how this text teaches us about corporate prayer. But Paul also teaches us here what these men praying should be like. It should be godly men. What does godliness in men look like? It looks like men praying. The world believes that manhood is self-confident and proud and arrogant. But that's not what the Bible teaches us here. The Bible teaches us here that when it comes to prayer, strong, godly men know that they are weak. They know that they need a savior. They know that they need to rely on the grace of God. And Paul addresses men here first, because when it comes to godliness in the church, and especially in prayer, God will ask of the man first. Remember when Adam and Eve fell and God came looking for them? His first question was, where are you, Adam? Where are you, men? When it comes to prayer in the church, the first ones that God will ask for is the men. When God builds us up in holiness, he builds us up in prayer. The men lead in prayer. And this is proper for godly men. We learn that it is proper here for men to pray in every place. But we learn here not only that they should pray, we learn what their lives should be like when they come to pray. We learn in verse 8 that they should be lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The Bible commands all Christians to forsake anger But here it's a call to men. And it's a recurring pattern in the Bible for men to forsake harshness, to forsake quarreling. It's a call to men to be on guard against anger. Men have this potential for strength, a potential for conflict. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, use those gifts rightly. Use those gifts rightly. This is proper for godly men. Men, because of your strengths and because of the gifts that God has given you, you have a potential for conflict. Be on guard against anger. Be on guard against quarreling. This means that we need to know when to be tough against sin and when to be tender with a family member, with a brother or sister in Christ. By their design, men have this potential, 
potential and it's bridled here by the commands of scriptures. The question for every man today is, what are you going to stand up for? What are you going to fight for? Are you going to fight your brothers and sisters? Or will you fight the fight of faith? Will you fight the fight of faith? Will you fight your sin? Will you fight your temptations? Or will you fight the people around you? And that's exactly what this church in Ephesus needed to hear because they dealt with false teaching and you can imagine the divisions and the quarreling happening in this church. False teaching that raises man against man and divides the church. You can imagine the quarreling going on here. And Paul says, lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. When you come to pray, don't come to pray like that. Don't come to pray with quarreling in your hearts, with hands ready to strike your brother. Come to pray with humble, holy hands. Come to pray without anger or quarreling. This is proper for godly men. Come with a desire to love your brothers. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, says, the aim of our charge is love. And Paul is applying that to godliness in men. Come to pray with a desire for all men to be saved. As we see, God desires all people to be saved in verse 4 of chapter 2. So pursue what is proper in godly men because God's will is fitting for his church. This is what's proper for godly men. Then in verse 9, we begin to see what is proper in godly women. Paul says here that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And if we look at verses 9 through 15, we see throughout this text a concern for feminine godliness. Because of what this text teaches about authority in the church, some people have assumed that this text has a low view of women. But I would challenge you to consider the amount of attention and space and the care that the Apostle Paul has here for holiness in women. He desires to see holy women, Christ-like women, women who follow Christ. And he, he spends this text here, this, he spends this attention here instructing them in godliness. This is Paul loving his sisters in Christ. It's a helpful instruction and a helpful reminder that women, your holiness matters. Your holiness in the church matters. The church needs to have you godly and holy, just like we need the men. And we see this particular instruction here regarding apparel in verse 9. If earlier we saw how pride manifests itself often in men with anger and quarreling, often pride shows itself in women through attire and external adornment. By God's design, women have the potential to catch attention. And Paul says, when you come to pray, don't come to pray like that. Come to pray with humble hearts in respectable apparel. 
Paul is telling his sisters in Christ, don't let your vanity get the best of you. Pour yourself into good works, he says in verse 10. Don't let your pride come out, but pour yourself into humble good works. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll find a parallel text that helps us understand what Paul is saying here. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. We, we find a very similar gendered imperative, an exhortation, a loving instruction to women to walk in holiness. Peter writes, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is the same instruction that Paul is giving to women in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The question facing every woman in this congregation today is, what will your adornment be? What will your adornment be? The question is not whether you'll seek beauty, but where will you turn for it? Not whether, but which. Will you turn to the world for the perishable adornment? Or will you turn to the imperishable riches of holiness in Jesus Christ? That's what Peter and Paul are instructing women in. Godliness in women seeks imperishable riches. <clears throat> and as careful Bible readers, readers, we should also note here that Jesus Christ is not opposed to adornment. Jesus Christ is not against jewelry. In fact, we find in the Old Testament apparel and jewelry used rightly. We find in the Old Testament that when Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was found by the servant, he comes with apparel and jewelry. We find in the Psalms descriptions of jewelry on women in the court of Israel's king. So this is not a prohibition on all jewelry, but it is an instruction and exhortation to find your beauty, find your identity in Christ, in imperishable riches. This is an instruction against trying to puff yourself up by wearing certain things or to catch attention by wearing certain things. Jesus Christ loves women. He gave himself for women. And he died for the sins of vanity and pride. Therefore, Christian women, they love turning away from these sins. They love walking in holiness and godliness. Jesus died to set us free from these sins. The world has entire industries aimed at women telling you that if only you had this outfit, if only you had this piece of attire, then you would be happy and free. That's not what the Bible teaches. These are lies from the pit of hell that turn women away from Christ and away from his instruction. We should keep in mind that this letter, 1 Timothy, it's a letter concerned with false teaching. And so what is it that's happening 
when the devil comes and deceives women into these sins, he's teaching them false teaching. He's teaching them false things. When the, the devil tempts women into immodesty, he's tempting them into deceit. And what Paul is telling us here is something remarkable because he's saying there is something that's proper for women who profess godliness. In other words, whatever you profess with your mouth, your heart's convictions will come out in what you do and what you wear. Your heart's convictions will come out. In other words, Paul is saying here, your true theology will be revealed in what you do and what you wear. So in attire, Paul is commending simplicity and humility, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. It's an exhortation for women to be on guard against these sins. It's an exhortation for men not to encourage them. It's an exhortation for parents to help their daughters grow in godliness, to help their daughters avoid these sins out of love for Christ and out of gratitude for his salvation. But that's not what, all that Paul says here. He doesn't only talk about attire. He teaches us in verse 10 that what is proper for women is walking in good works. What is proper for women is walking in good works. Good works are proper for godly women. If you think that the Christian view of women is merely that they should dress modestly, there's a higher standard in this text. There's a much higher standard in this text. We should not want less for women than God does. And what God desires for women here is walking in good works. Men and women, fathers and mothers, need to hear this. This is the Christian view of women created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what the Bible teaches about women. And what are these good works? We find an example in chapter 5, verse 10. We learn about caring for her family, being active in the life of the church, participating in mercy ministry, a wide variety of good works to which women are called to. A wide variety of good works. When we look at these lists here, these lists are by no means exhaustive, but they are representative. If you are a Christian woman here today, by God's grace and in God's providence, wherever you are in life, there are good works for you to do. That's God's desire and God's will for you in Jesus Christ. It's a desire for good works in godly women. Good works are proper for godly women. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, Paul addresses women in relation to authority. In verse 13, he addresses the creation order and grounds those commandments. And then in verse 15, he again comes back to talk about godliness in women. In verses 13 and 14, he summarizes the account of creation. He talks about Adam and Eve. And he identifies men with Adam and women with Eve in this text. 
And then in verse 15, he turns the corner and he says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, because Paul is talking about Adam and Eve in the previous verses, it would be easy to assume that at first look, when he begins this verse, he says, she will be saved, that he means Eve. However, halfway through the verse, he switches pronouns and he says, if they continue in faith, hope, and love. So Paul is talking about creation and he turns the corner and he's applying these instructions to all women in the church. And so let's look at this phrase, she will be saved through childbearing. Admittedly, it is an unusual statement for Paul. It is not something that he says often. But we have a hint of what this phrase means if we look at chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16 helps us interpret this verse. He's talking to Timothy and he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Similarly, an unusual phrase about being saved by abiding in your role. Being saved by, by doing the duties that God has assigned to you. And so that's the, the context for chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, she will be saved through childbearing. He's teaching us something else about what is proper for godly women. He's still talking about women. and He's tipping us off about women's distinctive role. She will be saved through childbearing. Childbearing here is not saying that, only godly, that, that women are only godly if they have children. But because in this text he's dealing with distinctive roles, he's pointing us to something distinctive about women. The calling to give and nurture life. The calling to give and nurture life. And what the distinction he's making in this text is not a distinction among women, but it's a distinction between women and men. All women are included here. All women are brought together in Eve here, who was called the mother of the living. All women are brought together, whatever their stage of life, they are placed here in distinction from the men. Even beyond the biological birth, women have a calling to give and nurture life, and they do it in a myriad of ways. There's a wide range of activities that women do, and childbearing in this verse represents them all. Women do a lot of things that men can't. And as, an, as a representative of that role, Paul says, they will be saved through childbearing because no man could ever be a mother. No man could ever be a mother. And under this category, women's distinctive role, there are so many other things that women do that men simply cannot, that men are not called to. Childbearing represents all women here. And because of the occasion for this letter, false teaching in the church, false doctrine, we can assume that Paul is correcting something false that was being taught in this church. 
If you look with me at chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. We learn that these false teachers, they forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods. And I want to draw your attention to that phrase, they forbid marriage. In other words, marriage for them was something unspiritual, disworldly, not necessary. And you can imagine what these false teachers were saying about moms. They were diminishing the role of motherhood. It's it's possible that these false teachers had a very low view of motherhood. And what Paul is doing here is he's lifting that role up and saying, this is necessary in the church. God values motherhood. Mothers, you are raising souls that will live forever. You have an influence on these children that nobody else will have. We find out here in in the New Testament that Timothy, the person to whom Paul is writing, where did he learn the Bible? He learned it from his mother and from his grandmother. We find out that women have this particular role emphasized here of motherhood, of giving and nurturing life. Not exhaustive, not limited to that, but still very, very important. And Paul is lifting that role up. It is proper for women to give and nurture life in God's church, to shape and fill life in God's church. In all the ways that women do that, they are not interchangeable with men. And keep in mind that in verse 15, Paul says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, Childbearing is not exhaustive. Good works is not exhaustive. There is a beautiful design for women to continue in faith and love and holiness. There are ways that women follow Christ. And more than that, simply reducing this to a domestic role is not enough. Because Paul says here, he wants them to continue in faith. He wants them to walk in the footsteps of Christ to follow Christ. This is a clear message to all women that hear this word, that God desires your salvation. God desires your holiness. This is the fruit of the Spirit here being shown in in godly women. The fruit of the Spirit being shown in Christian women. Jesus Christ loved you and gave himself for you, just like he gave himself for the church. And the encouragement here to women is to continue in following Christ. Continue in fulfilling all the things that God has called you to, including all the things that are distinctively feminine. You follow Christ as a woman, just like men follow Christ as men. The encouragement here is to pursue what is proper for godly women. Pursue what is proper for godly women. So so Paul gives instructions for godly men in verse 8. He gives instructions to godly women in how they should adorn themselves. He instructs them to good works. And because he's still talking about corporate worship, he's still talking about the gathered church, 
beginning with verse 11, he addresses the authority structures in the church. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Our chapter division here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 may hinder us from observing that when Paul transitions here to talk about church leadership right after these verses, he is still talking about the same subject. While Paul is in, on the topic of women's roles, while he praises women and exhorts women and instructs women, he also teaches us about roles that are not feminine in the church. Roles that are not feminine in the church. And that's where verses 11 and 12 come in. In other words, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He's teaching us that women do not take on roles of teaching and authority over the gathering of the whole church. Women do not take the role and are not called to the role of teaching and authority over the entire church. This does not mean that women are not called to teach. We have exhortations in the New Testament about women teaching women, about women teaching men, uh, women teaching uh, men as children. We learn about Timothy. He learned the Bible from his mother and gra grandmother. But there, are, there is a distinctive authority structure in the church, a distinctive role of teaching and authority to the gathered church that is reserved for men. So let's look at verse 11. We should not miss here that Paul assumes that women will learn. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He's assuming that women will learn. And this makes sense in light of, we saw, of what we saw earlier. He wants them to persevere in faith and love and holiness. How will they persevere? Because they will learn. Because they will be taught. They will learn because someone will teach them. How will they be prepared for those good works? Because someone will be teaching them. They will learn. This is, a, this is an assumption we see here that we should all have. That women can learn. That women should want to learn. And that women need to learn. We all need to be instructed in sound doctrine. So womanhood, in Paul's mind, is not just a call to domestic roles. It's a call to know doctrine, to know the Bible well. It's a call to walk in the truth. But this imperative in verse 11, it shows us how they will learn. It says, quiet with all submissiveness. And again, in verse 12, he uses the word quiet. This emphasis on quietness here, it tells us that the roles of teaching in the gathering of the whole church, they are reserved for men. Not all men, qualified men, as chapter 3 tells us, but they are reserved for men. And the word submissiveness in verse 11 does not refer to women submitting to all men, but it refers to women submitting to the proper and faithful teaching of the word. Women submitting to the word 
and to Christ's under-shepherds that teach that word. This exclusion of women from church leadership makes sense, again, when we think about the context of 1 Timothy. What is Paul wanting Timothy to do? What is Paul wanting Timothy to do? Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Verse 18 of chapter 1 tells us that he is calling Timothy to wage the good warfare. All of us as Christians are called to engage in spiritual warfare, but there are qualified men called to lead that charge. There are qualified men called to be elders and pastors in the church to lead that charge corporately for all of us to be in the first line of fire, to be the first line of defense. And Paul is saying, that, that's a place for qualified men. Not for everyone, for qualified men. That's what godly manhood does. It does not put women in the line of fire. It doesn't, does not call women to sacrifice first. When Paul talks about authority here, remember how Jesus Christ got his authority over the church. It was a crown of thorns. It was death to self. And so when Paul talks about women's roles in the church and men's calling to be qualified men if they lead the church, it's a call to self-denial. It's a call to be on the first line of fire, to be the first people in, the first people in conflict, the first people teaching, the first people facing false teaching, protecting sound doctrine. It's a responsibility given to qualified men. We learn that this letter is teaching us about order in the household of God. And think about how fitting this is. How fitting this is if God calls men to lead their families and their households. How fitting it is that God calls men to lead the household of God. Just like God calls men to lead, to lead their household, households, he calls men to lead the household of God. There's no way to invert this order here without also inverting order in the family. And these commandments here, they are not Paul's idea. When Paul says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach, he's not making it up. Because it's the same thing, he, it's a similar phrase to what he says earlier. In verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Or in verse 1, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers be made for all people. So this authority that Paul has to teach the Gentiles, it comes from Jesus Christ. And there's no way to undo this imperative here without undoing everything else that Paul commands in this text. It is not Paul's idea. And it is not conditioned by Paul's culture. Often you'll hear people deal with this text and say, well, this was in Paul's culture. But if we study Paul's culture, we find out that Paul's culture actually had women leader, leading worship. It had women leading people to worship pagan deities in pagan, pagan temples. So if anything, Paul is being countercultural here because he's saying mankind was made in the image of God, male and female. And we recognize and honor that distinction in the church. We see that this 
instruction transcends culture because of the grounds that Paul gives here in verse 13. He goes all the way back to creation and says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Not only is Paul appealing to Adam and Eve here, but he's appealing to a state before the fall. He's appealing to the state in which God called Adam and Eve, his creation, very good. This is why it's not conditioned and it's not dependent on Paul's culture, but it's a universal command to all churches everywhere. There was a structure before the fall where Adam was the head of the family. And then in the fall, which is what Paul addresses in verse 14, that order was reversed. Look at verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The serpent came and he inverted that structure. He came after the woman. And in the fall, there was an abdication on Adam's part of his responsibility to protect his household. There was an abdication on Adam's part. We learn in Genesis that he was right next to her and he didn't do anything. And in the kingdom of God, that beautiful order, that structure from before the fall is restored and renewed. That structure from before the fall is restored and renewed. When it says here that this, the woman was deceived, we should not take this as women are not capable of intellectually comprehending or passing on doctrine. Again, because women are called to teach other women and women are called to teach children. If Paul believed that women are just gullible, why would he entrust them with such precious responsibilities? What Paul is pointing us here is not competency to understand doctrine, he wants them to learn. What Paul is pointing us to here is the order of creation that is restored in Christ's church. The Apostle Paul trusts women, he works with women. All over his letters we see that he partnered with women in ministry. But he also honors their distinctive role as women. Elizabeth Elliot, wife of the famous missionary, wrote a book called Let Me Be a Woman. Let Me Be a Woman. And that's what Paul does here. He's honoring the role of women. He's saying women should not be men and men should not be women. Women and men follow Christ as they were created. We can only serve God rightly when Men are men, and women are women. That's God's design for his church. And this is why we should have a strong conviction that the role of elder and pastor in Christ's church is, re is reserved for men because of the masculine role that it requires to protect, to lead, to fall down on the sword first. The reason that the contemporary church has such a big problem with this text is because we have long abandoned the requirement for courage and firmness from our pastors. The, the contemporary church has abandoned seeing the pastoral work as work that requires courage, firmness, and manhood. 
there are feminine roles and there are masculine roles, and there are things that they do in common. When it comes to church leadership, it's a masculine role. It's not feminine and it's not neutral. It's a masculine role. Think about the kinds of things that Timothy had to do in, le in leading this church to confront false teachers. Think about the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul had to do. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, he handed people over to Satan. That's part of the job description. Church discipline is part of the job description. Courage and conviction is part of the job description. That's why the pastoral office is a masculine role. It requires manhood. Not fake manhood, not what the world thinks manhood is, not self-confident and arrogant and angry, but proper manhood, godly manhood, willing to sacrifice, willing to serve, willing to lead with authority. Godly manhood does not send women to lead the charge. And that's proper for church leadership. It's proper for church leadership. Consider the military language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy. He says several times, I entrust you this charge. It's a military call that Timothy has. And that's the context in which he gives these instructions about church leadership. He's saying the roles of teaching the entire church and the roles of authority are reserved for qualified men. So we've seen what is proper for men in godliness, what is proper for women in godliness, what is proper for church leadership in godliness. And this list continues in chapter 3 with godly requirements for church leaders. And as we step back and we, and we look at this text, what this text is teaching us, we should consider, again, what is at stake in our obedience to these commands. As we come before the inerrant, inspired word of God, what is at stake here is the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His glory as creator, his glory as redeemer. This is his will for his church. This is what he desires to see in the household of God. And I hope that as we spend time in these verses, we learn to appreciate and understand to obey and to love the order that God installs in his church. This is what King Jesus desires for his kingdom. This is how he orders his church. This is, this is what he died to produce in the church. Godly men, godly women. This is what Jesus is shaping the church to be. To be a family on mission, where men are men, where women are women, each called to follow Christ. This beautiful order, created in Genesis, reversed in the fall, and restored through the gospel. When we submit to this order, we adorn the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we make a, a powerful witness about us laying down our preferences, both men and women, laying down our lives and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. 
we've talked about what is proper. And Jesus Christ delivers our hearts from desiring what is improper. His grace restores our nature. His grace trains us in godliness as men and women. And we should never think that the world has something better to offer us. We should never think that the world has something better to offer us. What Jesus desires for his church is for his glory and for our good. What is proper in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come with humble hearts, thankful for the clarity that your word brings. We thank you that you are a God of order and a God of love, a God who sent his own son to die for us, to bring us to himself, to forgive us our sins, and to shape us in godliness, to shape us in holiness. We praise you, Lord, for the amazing salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That his grace trains us in obedience, trains us to love his precepts. Father, we ask that you would help us to obey them, help us to appreciate them and love them. We thank you that you intend these things for our good, that you have our eternal gladness in mind. We thank you that Jesus died to sanctify his church and that by his spirit he is conforming us to his word. We thank you, Lord, for the the distinctive roles that you gave to men and women. We receive them with gratitude and we ask them that you would make us obedient, make us willing, give us a desire in our hearts to see the image of God in men and women, to be a family on mission, desiring to glorify Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.